in that I'm going to begin my sermon and then uh, Dean will come and and share the uh, scripture passage that um, is the text for what I'm preaching on today. So uh, we didn't forget it, it's just coming a little later than it usually does. In 1967, there was a film that came out by, and it starred a number of well-known actors from that time called The Dirty Dozen. You're saying, what's that got to do with church? Well, first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the story. Uh, A few months before D-Day, Major Reisman, a U.S. Army officer staged in England, is given the task of training 12 convicted GIs. Things like murder, rape, theft, for the suicidal mission of parachuting into Nazi-occupied France and blowing up a chateau housing top-ranking German officers. Although the 12 men agreed to undertake the assignment in the hope of being granted pardons, their initial reaction to Reisman is one of indifference and contempt. But with Sergeant Boren's aid, Reisman goads, browbeats, that's a way to win people's hearts, and drives the men until he earns a small measure of respect from each one of them. And by standing up for his squad against the opposition of two superior officers, Colonel Breed and General Denton, Reisman eventually succeeds in forging his band of misfits into a fighting unit. To prove the worth of the Dirty Dozen, a nickname the men acquired when they were deprived soap and water, Reisman gains permission from General Warden to allow the men to participate in war game maneuvers. After making a fool of the pompous Colonel Breed by capturing his entire staff, the men are given the go-ahead for the dangerous mission. Once parachuted into France, they make their way to the chateau and by various ruses and surprise attacks gain entry. Everything goes as planned until one of the dozen, Archer Maggot, great last name, goes berserk and betrays his colleagues. He is shot down. However, as the chateau is turned into a battleground of rapid machine gun fire and exploding grenades, savage infighting ends only when gasoline-soaked grenades are thrown down ventilator shafts, blowing the chateau to bits. Only three of the twelve men are still alive when it's over. Both Reisman and Sergeant Bowren are are present when General Warden reveals that the ex-criminals who gave their lives are now listed as soldiers who died honorably in the line of duty. If you remember your Bible stories, you'll recall how David the shepherd boy had saved the day when the giant Goliath challenged the army of Israel to battle and no one would go to confront him (laughs) except David. He stepped forward and defeated the giant with his sling and a stone. From that point, David went on to become King Saul's most effective officer, leading the king's army into many victories. After a time, though, Saul 
started to get jealous of David's success and he began to feel threatened and so he decided to kill David. While David wasn't amused and not wanting to be killed, he headed for the hills. The thing that put David in a difficult spot, though, was his integrity. You see, he knew that Saul had been anointed by God. And even though Saul had wandered away from his calling, David wouldn't harm him. Saul was king, David wasn't. And so even though Saul was trying to separate David's head from his shoulders, David refused to retaliate. Instead, he continued to fight against the king's enemies, and at the same time, he was trying to avoid being killed by that very king. Kind of a confusing situation, isn't it? David has surrounded himself, it says now, with many people who would have been called losers. As a matter of fact, listen to how the Bible refers to them. So the scripture is 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam. Adullam, I call it. But okay. We argued about that earlier, right? When his brothers in his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. The word of the Lord. Well, that's, I don't know, I guess we could call them the dirty 400 then. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce the cave. I call it a dullum. Maybe it's Ah Dulam. I don't know how they would say it there. But so some scholars tell us that Adullam Cave became a kind of headquarters for David and his warriors. It provided them with a location that was semi secure from King Saul and his forces and still allowed them to wage guerrilla warfare against the invading uh, Philistines. So, Adullam's cave. Well, what happened there? First of all, Adullam's cave was a place of refuge. See, I think the cave, in a sense, is a picture of the church. The name Adullam likely comes from a Hebrew word that means refuge. And this place for David and the men who came to him certainly did become a cave of refuge. And it's the, the Bible tells us, as Dean just read, that, that the men who came to David at this point were in distress, in debt, and discontented. They were running from something and trying to find purpose and hope and a reason to live. And David welcomed them, and he loved them, and he trained them. These men who joined David later became known as David's mighty men. Probably one of the greatest fighting forces the world has ever known. And this story can also be seen as a metaphor for what the church of Jesus Christ 
is called to look like in our day. The church can be a place where the broken, hurting, and hopeless can find a reason to live. A place of refuge. When you read this story, you'll notice first that David provided a refuge. He welcomed all of these men. This reminds us of Jesus who, rather than spending time with the religious good folks of his day, spent time with tax collectors, prostitutes, and those who would never be welcomed in the church. A church of refuge needs to be a place where God's unconditional love is taught and modeled and lived by all who attend. Everyone is welcome in a place of refuge, even if they are the ones the church has traditionally shunned. Men who came to him, men who came, came to him came from everywhere. Four hundred of them at this point. And it says, it was everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented. First Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 31 say this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result... No one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made Him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the Scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Nothing changed. Nothing changed from David's time to the time of Jesus Christ. So they came to the cave, needing protection, needing training, needing a cause. And so the cave of Bedulam was a place of transformation. David inspired them to be transformed. Psalm 57 is the only psalm that we know for sure was written by David during his time at the cave of Adullam. In this passage, in that passage in Psalms, we see that David inspired transformation in his men by reminding them that God loved them unconditionally, that His kingdom will come on earth, and that there will be a time to leave the cave in order to proclaim His reign among the nations. A place of refuge where transformation is expected, welcomes everyone. But it isn't, apo- it isn't apologetic about holding one another spiritually accountable for sin either. That's one of the things we do in the body of Christ. That's one of the things that David did with his men. He held them accountable. Because we know that sin separates man from God. Any spiritual journey that does not address sin's destructive power will not result 
and transformation. If we are real followers of King Jesus, we are not to leave the cave the same way we came in. We come into the presence of His unconditional love not simply to bask in that love, but to be changed. Those men didn't spend time decorating the cave. It was only a place where their lives were to be changed. And our buildings are simply caves where we gather to be changed by the power of God. So each man had a choice to make. First of all, the distressed had to move to freedom. The the word distressed used here literally means someone who is oppressed, particularly oppressed by an enemy. The hounded came to David at Adullam's cave and he took them in. And they had a choice to make. They could keep on running from the enemy who was pursuing them, or they could take their stand at the cave of Adullam with David and 400 others just like themselves. Now to me, that doesn't sound like a hard choice. It's a no-brainer, right? Leave your oppression behind. Who wants to live in distress? Who wants to be hounded by an oppressing enemy? But it's incredible how many people are hesitant to leave oppression. I don't know if it's a matter of we're so used to it or we're just afraid of what change might bring into our lives. So the devil has a foothold and we're allowing him to keep that foothold in our lives. We hold on to our sin. We prolong our bondages. Someone said one time in a book that I read that we're more afraid of the Holy Spirit than we are of the devil. I mean, what if the Holy Spirit asks me to make some kind of change I don't want to make? If God has delivered you from the bondage of oppression... You need to fill your life then with new things, with godly things. Philippians 4.8 gives us some instruction in that. It says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And in Romans chapter 12, verse Verse 2, it tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Amen? It starts here, folks. It starts here. The battle begins in your mind. Whatever you're dwelling on, whatever your focus is, that is what will control you. And the Bible tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You are a new creation. Fill your life with new things, new thoughts, new ways, new standards, new priorities. You've got to hate that oppression. Run to God for once for all deliverance. No turning back. Get away from the, get away from the cave of Adullam. Be with God's people. Let God make you into a soldier and weld you into a member of His army. Sounds good. Um, At the cave of Adullam, those in debt had to become equally committed to one another. Now, the word debt there is pretty straightforward. 
But common sense would tell us that it's not just referring to those who've run up uh, their credit cards to the limit and need some financial counseling to get back on track. These were folks most likely who had borrowed against their property, perhaps against their own freedom, in hopes of pulling themselves out of poverty. But having gambled that crops would be good or livestock markets would rise or whatever, had lost it all and perhaps borrowed again and lost again. Now, I know that's somewhat speculative, but remember that in those days there were debtors' prisons. There was indentured servanthood. There was harsh punishment for debts unpaid. And whatever the individual circumstances were, they were enough to drive them from their homes to David's side in the cave. Here were men who had been taxed and overtaxed again and realized that there was no way out of the situation they found themselves in. They begin to think about the unfairness of it all and the fact that their children were going to have to serve as slaves just to pay off their debts. They looked into the eyes of their children and looked into the depths of their own hearts and they weren't going to take it any longer. And you know what? David had nothing to offer them. But they forged a community where each were equally committed one to the other. They looked to God together. <laughs> Sounds an awful, light, like, awful lot like what we should do in the church, doesn't it? Listen to Acts chapter 2. To the description there, this is verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Listen, folks, there weren't too many wealthy people, just common folk in this passage that we're talking about in Acts. They hardly had two cents to rub together, but what they did have, they used to look after one another. And then in the cave of Adullam, the discontent had to find peace in their hearts. People came to David who were not satisfied with the status quo of the kingdom. I'm talking about Saul's kingdom. Not satisfied with serving under a king who was not hearing from God and was leading the nation in disobedience to the direction that the Lord was giving them through Samuel. So they came to David to find a future and a hope. A cause worth fighting for. A destiny together. And God mightily gave them that. But you know what? Life with David wasn't all fun and games. It was difficult. Apart from the very real threat of attack by Saul... Just living day to day, each man found that he was surrounded by 400 others who were distressed, in debt, and discontented. It took time for them to become an army. Yes, yet in the cave of Adullam they found peace. Not from external forces, but in their own hearts, for now they had a reason, a cause, and a purpose. Their lives now had hope. And direction. You know, 
especially in our culture, I think some people tend to move from church to church because of discontent. Now, now that's not to say that there might not be a time that God calls you out of one place to another for very good reason. I know that happens. But if it's just a, a case of moving around to find the perfect church, guess what? Your search will never end. Every church is in a Dulem's cave full of people who have come there because of their distress, their debt, and their discontent. So, it's time to throw in your lot with the cave of Adullam, where God's people are, even if it isn't perfect. And let God build a mighty army right here. And then Adullam's cave was a place of deployment. See, the third thing that David did was he's inspired, he inspired these men to pro- boldly proclaim a new kingdom. There was a king that would ascend the throne one day. The church today needs to demonstrate that there is a new king in town. His name is Jesus. And by following Jesus and by acting like him and by allowing our lives to be shaped by his Holy Spirit who lives within us, we can partner with God to accomplish his will in our church, in our town, in our state. In our world. When God does what He does, He does it through people. He does it through us. And the people that He uses to help establish His reign are those who have found Him to be loving and trustworthy and in whose lives His Spirit has done a work of transformation. See, God wants to turn the are-nots into an army. God wants to turn the are-nots into an army. Stories of David's 400 mighty men became legendary. 2 Samuel, chapter 23. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. I think some of the names, maybe to ancient Hebrew ears, these names sounded kind of neat. They sound kind of strange to me, but here we go. The first was Joshabim, the Hakamite, who was leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Wow. Next in rank of the three was Eleazar, Son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoah. You all know who that is. Once Eleazar and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire army had fled, he killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword, and the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. <laughs> Big chickens. Next in rank was Shema, son of Agi from Harar. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shema held his ground in the middle of the field and 
beat back the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. Abishai, son of Zariah, the brother of Joab, was the leader of the thirty. He once used his spear to kill 300 enemy warriors in a single battle. It was by such feats that he became as famous as the three. Abishai was the most famous of the thirty and was their commander, though he was not one of the three. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once armed with only a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the thirty, though he was not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. Wow! Wouldn't you like to meet those guys? They might be kind of scary, I don't know. Well, you know what? These great men that are talked about in 2 Samuel chapter 23 started out kind of like the dirty dozen. Misfits, outcasts. But David welded them into a fearsome fighting force. David was hiding from Saul in a cave. It was hard times. But he knew... And he wrote psalms about it, that God was with him. And God's angelic host was with him. And then there were these 400 men who came to him from everywhere, distressed, in debt, discontented as they came. And they camped around about David. Why? Well, he needed them as much as they needed him. He was training them, but they were strengthening him. And that is the church. It's not a building we go to, although we say we come to church. But this is the church. It's you. We come together together as a church. It's not a meeting we attend. It's not a club that we join. It's an army that God is welding together to stand strong shoulder to shoulder in every circumstance of life. And we've done that together, haven't we? Protecting encouraging, supporting. And I would say this, folks, it's needed now more than ever. It's a Dolom's cave. But you and I have a choice to make that we will turn away from our life if we're on the run from an oppressing enemy, that we will trust God for His full provision, living alongside others who are trusting God as well, encouraging one another, sharing whatever blessings we have with each other. And so we give up our discontentment, searching for that one place where everything will go our way and where we won't have a care in the world if that were only so. Adullam's cave is not a picnic. The church is not a rose garden. But it's God's provision for us. And it's so much better than any and every alternative.
one local church. And in this church, God is welding together an army for his glory. That's our future. That's our future. God help us. I think we have a bright future. We might be watching it from afar, but I think we have a bright future. We want to... uh,